From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A president who won't concede a chunk of the electorate that doesn't believe the election was fair. Almost sounds like a dispatch from abroad, but that's the U.S. today. So what might we learn from countries that have healed bitter political divides? Then, an ER nurse on why this wave of COVID-19 feels different from earlier ones. When he's not bedside, Kyle Mullicutt is also a state lawmaker, frustrated to see some of his colleagues maskless. Plus, in Purplish, CPR's politics podcast, elections are a time of reckoning, a chance to look at the choices voters made and where Colorado goes from here. People are hungry for bipartisanship. So hopefully in the legislature, both sides of the aisle stand up and take notice. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their every day. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. These are our darkest days as a nation. They are our darkest days as a state. That's how Governor Jared Polis summed up the COVID-19 situation late last week. He pled with Coloradans to isolate, especially as Thanksgiving nears. If they don't, he says, the health care system will be pushed to the brink. As cases increase, we are seeing a corresponding increase in hospitalizations. Surge capacity, meaning how do we serve more people, is absolutely critical to manage the influx of patients. And we all know that if our health care system is overwhelmed, then people will die who could have been saved. And that's not just COVID. That, that, that could be a heart attack, a stroke, appendicitis. The worst case scenario, which it is our goal to avoid, and we will continue to struggle to do so, is that so many Coloradans are sick that there's not enough beds or staff or equipment. And as a result, more Coloradans would lose their life. Let's zoom in on one word there, staff. There can be enough ventilators and beds and PPE, but healthcare workers are getting burned out or sick. Kyle Mullica has seen this firsthand. He's a nurse in the emergency department at Presbyterian St. Luke's in Denver. Mullica is also a state lawmaker who just won re-election in North Glen. Representative, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. In the ER, what's different about this COVID wave versus earlier ones? Yeah, uh, you know, first off, I want to apologize if you hear anything in the background, Ryan. I have a kindergartner and a second grader at home, and it's music class, and you never know what you're going to get when music class comes on. So no problem. Uh, so apologize for that in the in the beginning. But uh, you know, we're seeing um, just the pure volume of cases uh, increase coming into the ER. Um, and I think something that I've noticed uh, personally from this wave uh, compared to the, the wave that we saw back in March and April um, is that everything else isn't stopping from coming in. Uh, back in, in March and April, we definitely saw a slowdown in, in other uh, higher acuity cases, heart attacks, strokes, uh, you know, kind of come to a halt for some reason coming in. And all of that is uh, still uh, coming in with the COVID. And so we're having that heart attack patient, we're having that stroke patient, 
Um, and that's just putting that uh, uh, even more stress on the system. Yeah, this is what was referred to as Slovid in the beginning, that people were essentially not coming into the hospital even for potentially serious issues. And I suppose they were dying at home. Now they're coming to the hospital. And that adds to uh, your population, to your numbers, right? It really does, you know, and I think that that's why it's so important that we try to, uh, you know, prevent the the number of COVID patients that we have. And and that's, you know, you it, it's it's tough to really prevent that heart attack from happening. But, you know, we can't prevent that COVID uh, patient from coming in if mm. we can stop the spread, if we can really follow these public health guidelines. Um, and that's where we're really trying to work at is that if we can uh, if we can slow the spread and slow the number of COVID patients coming in, then that uh opens up resources that we can take care of those other more serious patients as well and not, um, you know, have that extra stress on the system. What are the signs of burnout that you see? And I wonder if you're experiencing them yourself. Yeah, I mean, we've, we, as nurses and frontline healthcare workers, we've been battling this pandemic coming up on eight months now, um, you know, and so that's, that's a lot to deal with as, as nurses and taking care of patients. Uh, I think that, something people may not realize is just the, the amount of resources that goes into taking care of a patient that is COVID positive. Uh, it's a very high acuity process and they, uh, they take a lot of resources and, um, and to do that for so long um, and then to get this wave coming in is, is really difficult. And, and you know, I think that uh, what you'll hear too is that in the winter time and in the fall time, it's a busy season anyway for the hospitals. And so it's just really that, um, that extra, extra thing on top of it that's making it really tough. Um, and then, you know, I think that uh, what we're seeing too is we're seeing, uh, you know, nurses and, and healthcare workers are not immune from contracting uh, this virus themselves. Yeah. Uh, and then when you have uh, multiple nurses that have to call in because they are positive or they're presumptive to be positive, uh, that leaves holes in the schedule and that leaves other staff that has to uh, pick that up and, and pick up, uh, those those patients and that can um, be be pretty pretty hard. So you have picked up shifts, in fact, for those who've gotten sick with COVID nineteen. I have seen anecdotally people just leaving the healthcare profession. Have you seen that? Yeah, I think it's it's you know it's really hard right now um, to to work in this environment, and that's you know it's um, it's funny because you know early on in this process. Uh, you know, a lot of healthcare workers, you know, uh, were being called heroes and um, a lot of appreciation showed, uh, but, uh, but we're normal people. We, we have families we, we want to get home to as well. And um, this, uh, th- this is tough and, and uh, it's, it's dangerous. It's, uh, it's not easy. It's uh, long hours, uh, you know, but you don't, you don't get into the nursing, Ryan, to, you know, become rich. You get into nursing because you care about people and because you want to help people. And that's been probably one of the more inspiring things that I've seen here is that, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of fear and a lot of unknown. Um, but, you know, the nurses, uh, they still, you know, they, they, they run towards that, that problem because they want to help people. And, and um, it's, it's, it's one of the more inspiring things I've seen. They may care for people, but I suppose to a certain extent, healthcare workers also want to see the community caring for them, uh, which is, I think, inherent in your pleas to folks to be mindful of large gatherings and of the spread of COVID-19. A new poll from Ohio State finds 
Nearly 40% of Americans are likely to gather in groups of more than 10 family members over the holidays. Uh, I don't imagine that's very encouraging on the front lines. I would like your reaction uh, to another development. Uh, This has to do with your role as state lawmaker. Republicans at the Capitol were seen maskless last week as they met to pick their leadership. Uh, Did you see that? And I wonder what you might share with your statehouse colleagues. Yeah, I, I did see it. And it's, 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 you know, first thing that comes to mind is that it's really disappointing is that, uh, you know, we, um, we're leaders in our community and people look to us for guidance and they look to us as an example. Um, and when people see pictures like that, that's, uh, that's not leading by example. Or when people see members of, 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 you know, the house putting things out on social media that, you know, you're a true, you're a true patriot if you don't wear a mask. Um, that, that's just really concerning to me. Um, you know, we, we were talking just a second ago about how do we honor healthcare workers? How do we, you know, the way to honor healthcare workers, Ryan, is to, uh, to try to prevent yourself from contracting this virus and to try to alleviate some of the pressure on this system that we're seeing. Um, you know, we, we have to be better. Uh, the, the trajectory that we're going on is not a good one. Um, and, you know, I think if I could share one thing with my colleagues in the house on the other side is that, you know, I have this unique ability that I'm able to wear two different hats. I'm able to be a state representative and also do something I love and be a nurse. Um, and if we don't lead by example, and if we don't try to really change this trajectory, uh, you know, me and my colleagues in this other realm that I represent are going to be the ones that have to talk to those families who, Uh, have loved ones who have died. Um, And it's completely preventable. And that's the thing that's most frustrating. You know, part of what I hear you saying is that if if you howled at eight o'clock each evening early in the pandemic, and you are now gathering in large groups, you are contradicting yourself. That is to say, you are howling to support healthcare workers. And what you're saying is your behavior needs to honor healthcare workers, Uh, your behavior around the virus. Uh, News today of another promising vaccine, this one from drug maker Moderna. Representative, you worked on vaccine legislation, making it uh, less convenient for parents to opt their children out of vaccination requirements. Uh, Just briefly, how does that shape your view of whether Coloradans will take advantage in ample numbers of a COVID-19 vaccine when it's available, if it's available? Yeah, I, you know, I think that it's been really concerning this whole process, and I saw it running uh, vaccine legislation, Ryan, is the, the politicization that is uh, creeping into public health, uh, you know, the, the anti-science rhetoric. And that's, that's really concerning to me because uh, politics really doesn't belong in that public health realm. We have to rely on those scientists and those public health officials who have spent their entire careers and their lives working on this. Um, and, and in reality, a vaccine is really the only way that we're going to, to get out of this. And, and we have to make sure that, uh, you know, we have enough people that are actually getting that vaccine so that we can get to a level um, where our community is protected, where we have herd immunity. Um, and that means that we need to, to really rely on that science. And I think it's, uh, it's difficult. Uh, and I saw it firsthand, you know, that uh, people can get information from anywhere they want. You know, we have the Internet and we have Google and People can put out anything they want, and um, and sometimes that's not accurate information. That's not scientifically based information, and that really uh, puts our communities in a tough position when 
uh, people are hesitant to, to get immunizations because um, those immunizations, those vaccines, we have to get to a rate to protect those who can't get vaccinated for those who are most vulnerable, for our elderly, for our kids. Um, and so that's that's probably been the most concerning thing I've seen. And, you know, I'm going to continue playing a role as a leader in my community to get out that information that uh, the benefits that vaccines can bring to our communities and, um, and that they save lives. One last question before we go. Uh, can you envision being back in the Capitol with other lawmakers in January for the new session? Or do you think leaders will have to figure something else out? Yeah, I think we're going to continue working on that, Ryan. I know that, you know, we have some amazing leadership uh, that have, you know, taken this this pandemic seriously from day one, um, and they continue working at it. I will tell you that, you know, it doesn't make life easier when you have members that, you know, refuse to really uh, abide by uh, public health, you know, guidelines and, and public health guidance uh, and, and refuse to wear a mask and refuse to socially distance. It doesn't make uh, life easier, and and you know, we have uh, members that serve in the House and the Senate who um, are vulnerable, and we have to make sure that we're protecting them, that we're protecting the public, uh, because that, you know, that comes first. You know, uh, I don't think any of us want to see anyone be harmed. Uh, we don't want to see anyone get sick, and uh, God forbid, we don't want to see anyone die. And so a lot of work's going into that. Uh, you know, um, you obviously know when we go into session, there's a lot of people that are attracted to the Capitol with the work that we do. And so uh, we just want to figure out how can we get the, the work uh, done for Colorado and for the people of Colorado, but do it in the safest way possible. Kyle Mullica there, ER nurse at Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Denver. He's also a Democratic state representative from North Glen. I'm only a little disappointed I didn't hear his children play music. I want to say that he has also received a Heroes Award for his work in the Cook County Jail. Early on in the pandemic, he went into Chicago to take care of sick inmates and staff. It sounds like something you'd read about an unstable country somewhere else on Earth. A new president has been elected, but the sitting leader claims without evidence that there was widespread voter fraud and refuses to concede. His followers, meanwhile, say they've lost faith in the voting system. Violence breaks out in the capital city. That is, of course, the highly polarized story of the USA right now. But our guest, international studies professor Tim Sisk of the University of Denver, says looking abroad might give us insight into our own path forward. Sister X, the new Institute for Comparative and Regional Studies at DU. Professor, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ryan. It's a real pleasure to be here with you this morning. Before we make any comparisons, I guess I want to ask you, did Russia break us well, that's a really good question. I think uh, the question of external influence in elections, you know, kind of runs both ways. For many years, the international community has been trying to strengthen elections abroad, U.S. democracy assistance, the U.N., etc. cetera. Uh, but foreign interference in our elections, I think, really just exacerbated the underlying polarization that we already saw and sort of just sped in into that. But there's no doubt that the um, that the uh, uh, electoral um, polarization that we've seen is the outcome of a, of a Russian uh, intelligence effort. That seems pretty clear to me. Mm -hmm. 
I keep thinking about a piece in The Atlantic uh, by Lebanese journalist Kim Hadas. Uh, she compared events here in the United States to her home country, which has you know, experienced creeping polarization since the 1970s. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, things deteriorated dramatically in Lebanon, and uh, it was a scary picture painted in this piece. Is that a comparison you'd make between the U.S. right now? Uh, well, um, to a certain extent. I mean, the United States has seen a pattern of social polarization, which is really common. And that's that is that it starts sort of slowly um, that you've got all these sort of underlying background conditions of of uh, distrust in the government, of distrust in the police. Um, but then polarization also happens kind of suddenly, usually with you know, as we've seen with an electoral process or a transition from authoritarianism to democracy. And so whether the U.S. is headed toward what we would call a deeply divided society like Lebanon, I think it's an open question. I think unless the U.S. To, um, can reverse its pattern of social polarization, yeah, we have risks of turning into, you know, like a Lebanon or a Northern Ireland, a, a Myanmar or South Africa, where sort of its pervasive uh, group identity and ethnic differences uh, that characterize these societies. So for many years, I've been studying these sort of deeply divided societies, yeah. and including Lebanon. And we see that, you know, Lebanon, of course, um, had 17 years of civil war and is so sort of structurally polarized. I don't quite see that for the United States, but I do see the danger signs. Give me an example of one. Well, the danger signs are really quite quite clear. It's uh, increasing hate speech. Uh, it is um, the distrust and difference that we see between people um, and the government. Uh, the um, Representative Mullica mentioned the, uh, in, in response to your question, uh, the question of masks and wearing masks during COVID. You know, to what extent do people trust their leaders to provide uh, clear information, or do they do they sort of go to um, norms and values that they that they've long held and sort of retreat into identity? Whenever there's sort of social tensions and social disruption, it's kind of common that people might retreat into identity-based groups. That's certainly the case in Lebanon, where you know you have these sort of 17 confessional or sectarian groups, and they sort of reside all in the same country, but there's not a lot of, of, of kind of integration and, um, and coexistence uh, is, is at a minimum in, in Lebanon. You have written several guides for the United Nations. Uh, one was around uh, making sure that there isn't violence around elections and increasing confidence in elections. The other is called strengthening social cohesion, which highlights the importance of cohesion among individuals and institutions. And I understand this is actually something the United Nations has been warning about for some time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, I, I, Ryan, I've been I've been working with the UN Development Program. I just got three, four years of my life into the report you mentioned that came out in March of this year on strengthening social cohesion. Maybe from we, the UN. We divide, let's define that before you. Yeah. Talk. Yeah. Well, do you? I I kind of wonder. Do you want the 
do you want the short definition or the long academic <laughs> definition? Well, oh. My guess is you want the short I, definition. Yes, given time constraints. <laughs> yeah, sure enough. I mean, really, we think about social cohesion. What is it? Um, it's about trust in society. And, and when we think about trust in society, what's the kind of issues of trusting the government, trusting the police is a key aspect of, of social cohesion, sort of uh, trust, trust that we would call vertical social cohesion. And then there's what's called horizontal social cohesion. And that's like in the everyday. This is what, to use a bigger word than necessary, quotidian uh, experiences, like in the everyday, do people trust their Uber driver? Do they trust uh, um, uh, someone, uh, you know, the pilot of an airplane in which they're riding? And this is sort of the everyday notion of, of trust in society. But social cohesion goes beyond that. It's about a shared or common destiny, like a shared vision for society uh, is a key part of social cohesion. And I think the third element, and we look at countries like uh, uh, El Salvador uh, with very high rates of crime and interpersonal violence, you know, in the absence of sort of personal security, a social cohesion goes out the window, mm. right? So social cohesion is all of these things. It's it's uh, the sort of long definition uh, would have like a political, economic, social, psychological aspects. But the short definition, it's about trust. Well, it seems to me that right now uh, there is a pretty concerted effort to undermine social cohesion towards the election system. Uh, there is no evidence of widespread uh, fraud, uh, and yet that claim is being made over and over again. And it seems, if you look at the polls, that uh, a fair number of Americans believe it. What does that tell us about social cohesion in the U.S. right now? Yeah, it, it's a very good question because it tells us that the key to social cohesion, really, it starts at the very top. It starts among political leaders that even though they contest elections, they engage in what's called forbearance. In other words, you could rile up your supporters, you could gum up the workings of government, you could do all kinds of things uh, to... Um, uh, to to, to advance your case. But at the end of the day, in a democracy, a political leader says, well, I'm not going to use all of these potential instruments at my disposal uh, because the interest of the country uh, comes before my own personal interest. And what we've seen in so many places uh, is that you know, political leaders are both responsible for social polarization. I mean, we have a term in the political science literature called the ethnic entrepreneur. And that's the political leader who sort of sows fear and distrust in order to advance their aims. Um, on the other side, what we've seen in a place like Kenya, for example, 2019, the two, the two uh, big men, as it were, the two leaders, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta and Raila Odinga, um, after a very disputed election, you know, they have what they call the handshake, which is, in other words, they appear in public. Uh, they say, look, the country's interest is more important than our interests. And they have a very symbolic handshake. Uh, Tim, one, I think, rosy aspect of this most recent election is record turnout, record turnout among uh, partisans, both both Democrats and Republicans and unaffiliateds. Is that a sign of hope to you? 
Oh, Ryan, I'm not sure about that, actually, because oh. really what we're seeing in the election is a period of mobilization. That's pretty common in elections. You want to mobilize uh, your constituency to get out to vote. But at this period after election, what we need are political elites who then kind of involve themselves in what we would call demobilization. And unfortunately, I think that's what we've not seen. Uh, in the U.S. is, you know, political uh, leaders, particularly President Trump coming out to say, look, you know, we fought the good fight. We didn't win. We lost. Uh, and uh, but we live together. We have a shared or common destiny. And I think that's the kind of key lesson from abroad is that when political elites, you know, quarrel, uh, society polarizes. And that's a that's a problem worldwide. I mean, the secretary general of the U.N., uh, Antonio Guterres, he talks today about a tsunami of hate worldwide and decries issues of hate speech online, of growing stigmatization and, and discrimination against minorities and creeping authoritarianism around the world. So the mobilization that we've seen in the United States, and it's a common factor in elections, but it can't be a permanent state of affairs. Mm. So uh, while I'm all for voting and turnout <laughs> and, and participation and, and inclusion, uh, this uh, uh, record turnout maybe just reflects a little bit how polarized we really are. All right. Is there a place on the globe that has figured this out that can be a model well, we're kind of back to social cohesion. It's a bit like the concept of justice, right? It's something that you can pursue, but whether whether there's ever, a, you know, sort of a completely cohesive society, you know, this side of utopia, I don't, I don't think so. But there are very specific measures that have been taken around the world uh, to, to strengthen social cohesion. And the work that we did with the UN, uh, with the UN Development Program, we looked at, at about uh, 60 conflict-affected countries around the world in the two-year consultative process. And we asked the question, you know, what, what strengthens social cohesion? Uh, and, uh, and we drew some lessons, you know, there were really about five or six kind of key lessons that came out from that comparative study. I don't know that on, we'll have time know, for all five, but give us, give us a top one. Well, the top one, I would say, would be very kind of symbolic uh, public education campaigns. And I'll give you an example. Uh, out of the 2016 uh, peace agreement in Colombia, for example, uh, that was uh, mediated in, in Cuba by the UN and the Norwegians and the Cubans. We got the Havana Peace Agreement for Colombia. Uh, the UN launched what, call, what it called the uh, Respira Paz uh, program, uh, Breathe Peace. And what they did was they had, you know, those little breathe right strips that you put on your nose to, you know, help uh, uh, help with uh, your uh, respiratory system and breathing mm -hmm. and everything. So they got these little uh, breathe right type strips and everybody wore them. It was just kind of a public symbol that people were in favor of the peace agreement and they were in favor of this concept of social cohesion uh, that in Colombia we could call convicencia, right? You know, coexistence. Huh. Uh, and 
um, most societies have these kind of concepts of of living together, of harmony. You know, we think of Ubuntu in Southern Africa, for example. Uh, and these are sort of just putting it out there, talking about social cohesion, talking about a shared or common destiny, talking about the importance of shared symbols, I think is, Symbol. is really a critical factor. Symbol seems so important to me. It's been a theme of the conversation, and I appreciate it. That's Professor Tim Sisk, who directs the Institute for Comparative and Regional Studies at DU's Corbell School of International Studies. Colleges here in Colorado and across the country are still figuring out how to function in the COVID era. And we are going to speak with the president of the University of Colorado, Mark Kennedy, about what's ahead for higher education. He oversees the campuses in Boulder and Denver and Colorado Springs. So students, parents, teachers, staff, what do you want to know from him? Send your questions to Colorado Matters at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Your questions, once again, for the head of the CU system, who's scheduled to join us Thursday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado saw its first confirmed COVID-19 cases in early March. Many cases and deaths later, the state is heading into another peak. What have we learned? And what are health experts advising we do differently in the weeks and months to come? I'm Kate Schimmel with the CPR Newsroom. We're following those big questions as well as daily developments as we head into another season of this pandemic. Stay informed at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Every election brings a reckoning, a chance for this state to look at its choices and divisions and consider how to proceed. To begin that conversation, let's check in with the Purplish team, CPR public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim. Welcome two guests with a deep understanding of this state's politics and voters. We are excited to be joined by two of the biggest names in Colorado politics that you might not have heard of. Craig Hughes is a Democratic political consultant and a partner at Hilltop Public Solutions. He's helped Democrats win elections in Colorado at the highest levels of office. In 2010, he ran Senator Michael Bennett's campaign and continues to be Bennett's senior advisor. And our other virtual guest is Josh Penry. He served in the state legislature for six years, eventually becoming the Republican Senate Minority Leader. He runs EIS Solutions and has managed many successful political ballot measures. Craig Hughes and Josh Penry, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. So first off, it's it's hard to argue that this election wasn't a good year for Democratic candidates in Colorado. Democrats flipped a U.S. Senate seat from red to blue, and Joe Biden won the presidential race in Colorado by double digits. Democrats also picked up one seat in the state Senate. And I'll start with you, Josh. What does this mean for the Republican Party moving forward? Well, obviously, it was a, a good night for the Democratic Party in Colorado and, and nationally. And the reason for that, there, there's layers of complexity to it. Obviously, Colorado is evolving rapidly. It's become a younger and more progressive state over the space of the last 10 years. But really, uh, you can put the success on the, of the Democratic Party in Colorado and nationally on the doorstep of Donald Trump, who, uh, in Colorado at least, and in, in other large pockets across the country, is overwhelmingly and broadly unpopular. So it was, it was a tough night for the Republican Party in Colorado, but I've been around long enough. You know, Republicans had tough nights in 2008 and 2010, only to see gains clawed back to pendulum swings. And, and I suspect that will be the case here as well. And what's your sense, Craig? 
Yeah, I think it was a it was a repudiation, obviously, of Trump, who is, as Josh says, I mean, he is actually toxic here in Colorado. His his strongly unfavorables have always been above 50 percent. And the 2018 elections were the first massive repudiation of Trump and strong move towards Democrats uh, winning statewide elections. And 2020 just really built on that and not only wins, but really huge margins um, and building upon the margins in the so in the suburbs, but also into more Republican areas like Douglas and El Paso County. So it was a really strong win. Uh, I will echo, though, what Josh says is that um, elections are points in time and the pendulum does start to swing. And a lot of this was Trump based. I think where we where the Republican Party goes now will be very interesting to see if if that pendulum can shift in Colorado or if we are indeed a blue state. We were definitely following the U.S. Senate race pretty closely here between Republican incumbent Cory Gardner and Democrat John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper won by a, a sizable margin. You know, and Caitlin, you were talking to a lot of voters on the West Slope and did a couple election road trips. And fr- from what you were hearing from voters, do you think there's much Gardner could have done differently? You know, I don't. I mean, a lot of I think what Senator Gardner was depending on was a lot of these split ticket voters. But I feel because of Trump on the top of the ticket, it, it just sort of overwhelmed, at least on the on the top end, right, the federal things. For the most part, everyone I was talking to was saying they were going to vote party lines for president, senator, and Congress. It was when you got down to like the actual like, state level stuff that people would start thinking, oh, yeah, here's where I might split the ticket or at least consider someone from a different party. But I'm, I have a question for for Craig and Josh based on on the conversation earlier. You know, we, we've been talking about the Republican Party. I'm kind of curious about what you think this means for the Democratic Party in Colorado and this pendulum. I mean, 2018, 2020, is this the height of the blue wave here in Colorado, or do you still see room for the party to expand and grow? Uh, I would say there's a little bit of potential expansion, but uh, the dominance in the state house and the state senate is pretty large right now. And the margins you saw at the tip, top of the ticket are, are pretty hard to match, frankly. I think now it's about governing. It's about responsible governing and showing that Democrats in charge is better for Colorado. And that's really the goal now. I think electorally, it's hard to do much better. Josh, would you agree? Yeah, I think it a lot will depend on how they how the you know how the Democratic Party now kind of with unfettered control of the state behaves in the in the coming years. You know, Colorado is still fundamentally a, a down the middle kind of state, obviously hewing uh, hewing blue, but they like their politics balanced. And so, you know, I think one of the real challenges for the leadership in the House and the Senate, and obviously Governor Polis, at the end of the day, it rests with him foremost, is can they pursue a mainstream agenda? Or do they get captured by or get pushed, cajoled by sort of a fringe element of their base, which is is loud, is restive, is demanding, um, is pushing policies that are, you know, I think out of the mainstream nationally and certainly in Colorado. So a lot of what happens to Democrats in the coming year will be depend on you know, how they how they manage the the overwhelming power they've been given in the short term. So politics is also a lot about messaging. And I want to get your take on the how effective you think the messaging was of Republicans sort of tarnishing Democrats as far left defunding police, because I feel like that was actually quite successful. And I'm kind of curious about your take. Josh, what do you think? Well, I think it was case by case. In a lot of states, it worked. Democratic candidates who didn't draw bright lines against defunding the police had very bad nights. So it was potent where it was factual. 
the national committees tried to bring some of that against Hickenlooper, and that's just not who he is, right? You know, and, and he was clear enough early on that I think he managed to to to, to build a wall, for lack of a better metaphor, around him, and, and it and it didn't impact him. But at the end of the day, those issues are going to continue. The, the Democratic Party over time is going to have to continue to deal with those in an effective way, or it could hurt them. But this election was fundamentally in Colorado, in the suburbs. It wasn't about that. It was mm -hmm. about Donald Trump, that first level of analysis and whatever qualms or misgivings they had. You know, frankly, Hickenlooper's numbers were really lackluster. He was a lackluster candidate. In spite of all that, they came in, many of them like intercepted their ballot at the mailbox. They knew <laughs> who they were going to vote for because of that first order consideration, Donald Trump. I think it's also really hard to define people when they are already define the other way. I mean, I think Joe Biden, John Hickenlooper have long careers in public service, have yeah. long track records. You can't credibly call them socialists or say that they want to get rid of police forces, given their records, who they are, what they've done over time. So I think for those candidates, that didn't stick at all. Um, and that's part of who they were. I mean, John Hickenlooper has a long brand in Colorado. I also think it's one of the reasons this corruption attack didn't stick. Uh, this is a guy who was a very successful mayor, very successful governor, led us to the strongest economy in the nation. And all of a sudden, it was this corruption, corruption, corruption. And the voters just rejected it out of hand. Yeah, I yeah, think I, we I, heard I, that. I, if I could, can I just jump in on that? I, yeah. I, I apologize. That was, you know, John Hickenlooper got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, and it actually cost him. But there had to be a next act. There had to be a next argument. Whoever thought that a couple of you know, uh, some private jet trips were going to be enough to undo what Craig said, which was a sort of people's perception of him was it was a horrible mistake. And there are arguments. There was a, a more meaningful argument to make a series of more meaningful arguments. Um, and so I, I thought that was badly overplayed. I mean, they must have put 30,000 points of TV behind it. They probably could have got away, got, gotten away with two or three thousand of them actually made a more meaningful argument against him representing Colorado in the Senate. Yeah, I think you're both spot on. When we talked to a lot of voters who were going to back Hickenlooper, I think those attacks uh, were effective, but at the same time, it didn't change what they thought about him overall or maybe how they were going to vote in the end. So you, you both have described President Trump as toxic in Colorado. Around the country, we saw Trump make gains in a lot of states. Why do you think his brand of conservatism doesn't play as well here? And what could the Republican Party here learn from that? I mean, I, I think Corey was kind of, uh, you know, he was the most high-profile Republican elected official in the state, and now we, we won't have him in that position. So is there a vacuum? On, on Corey, you know, it's, it's interesting. Corey's the gifted politician that we all know him to be, and he's a close friend of mine, so I'm not a sort of a dispassionate person in this conversation. But he did make an, an important choice early on to make the argument that he was effective, that he had you know, brought the BLM to Grand Junction, that he had passed sweeping conservation legislation, Space Command, really kind of a almost like a, you know an Alaska senator from days of yore. I brought the goods home to my state. I think a, a different way to approach the race would have been how Susan Collins approached it, and frankly, how Susan Collins has pursued her mm -hmm. tenure in Washington, which is an independent voice, mm, okay. right? And and and, mm -hmm. and to me, I think in moments like this, people want to know: Are you good at your job? Or you work hard? Yeah, that's important. But like when push comes to shove, 
are you with the party instead of me? And so because Corey said, you know, I'm effective and I'm working with these, you know, the, the administration gets these things done, I think he sort of minimized his ability to make the case that he was an independent voice for the state. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting yeah. take because you're right. We did hear so much about his record. You know, Craig, would you, is that your sense too? I echo it. And I think, I think Senator Gardner had a chance to lose by less than he did uh, by maybe going that independent route and trying to be the Susan Collins. And I think there were key moments, you know, voting for uh, President Trump and the emergency powers to divert money from uh, projects to the wall, the Amy Coney Barrett Supreme Court nomination. There were points in time where he could have stood up and said no, and then I'm standing with Colorado, not with Trump. And he went the other direction. And Josh is exactly right. He said, I'm, I'm working with Trump to be effective for Colorado. And that was never going to win this race. It just wasn't. And fundamentally, I don't think he could have overcome this top of the ticket anchor that was Donald Trump, but it would have been very interesting to show some real independence from Trump and see if that's a better path. I'm kind of curious, though, talking about this independence from Trump, I thought, or at least it seemed to me, at least nationally across a lot of these races, senators have been very reluctant to show independence from Trump because you need that base, right? If Cory Gardner was had any chance of success here, it would have been the base plus you know, people he could convince in the unaffiliated. So, you know, how do you find that balance? I mean, I feel like that was like the biggest challenge. How do you find that balance between supporting Trump, but also being independent? I do think you have to acknowledge there aren't enough Republicans anymore for the base strategy to win in Colorado. I mean, the turnout here was there were 40% of those who voted were unaffiliated. Um, it is now the largest political party in Colorado by a huge margin. So a base first strategy does not win Colorado. I think mm. Strategically, you've got to say, I'm going to let President Trump turn out the base. I'm pretty confident that they will vote for me as another federal office holder on the ticket to hold the Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. But I'm going to spend my time appealing to those unaffiliated voters that dominate Colorado elections. This point that, that Craig just made about independence, it is such a key one. Independents are the major block. We, you know, we do a lot of data work and polling in, in our shop looking at ballot initiatives and some candidate work. The really important data point I always tell Republicans, independents are the largest block. And of those independents, you know, between 60 and 65 percent of that 40 percent are younger, more progressive voters. So the math is is a massive challenge. And so what, is, what does it mean? It means you actually have to behave as a centrist. You have to govern as a centrist. You have to lead as a centrist. You can't become a wholly owned subsidiary of the Republican Party or, frankly, even the Democratic Party if you want to survive long term. How does Lauren Boebert then fit into that kind of equation? Yeah, I mean, you know, voters are complicated. They're a complicated lot. Uh, you know, obviously, the third congressional district isn't the isn't the Denver and metro suburbs. Um, so that's the beginning of it. I will say if you look at Republicans that won some of these contested congressional seats around the country, they were women. They were minorities. They weren't like patrician old white guys. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, her shtick is her shtick and it's unique unto itself. We, I think Republicans would be smart not to overlearn lessons from her. But I do think running strong, capable women uh, who uh, advocate a centrist program in the, in the suburbs is still very much a winning formula for my party. Yeah, I think if, if Republicans allow Lauren Boebert to be the face and the voice of the Republican Party in Colorado, it's going to make their climb back even steeper. Um, CD3, which I live in, is very conservative, and it's very difficult for a Democrat to win. And I think, you know, Boebert, uh, the race was closer than it needed to be because she was more extreme than the district, but it is a very uh, Republican district, and she was able to 
to carry that. But uh, if she is the voice of the GOP, I think that's not going to augur well for them. So wanted to touch on another big thing. We talked about this election cycle, just so many ballot measures that voters decided and definitely conservatives racked up some wins there with some of the fiscal issues. Do you think that that's a path forward we could see, you know, for a state that is centrist in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at it, you now have a Democratic governor, a strong Democratic Senate, Democratic House. If you're a conservative the ballot box is your route to try to make policy changes. And I think the the passing of the two propositions on the, the income tax decrease and the kind of Tabor fee change, the fact that they passed gives conservatives hope that the ballot box is the way to go about things. So I think you're going to see some very complicated shenanigans, for lack of a better word, but strategic decisions about what to put on the ballot and what not to put on the ballot. Because if if you are a conservative in Colorado, you're not going to get it done through the legislature and the governor. You've got to go another route, and that's the way to do it. And Josh, did anything surprise you about the ballot initiative results? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I I take a step back and you know, what does it say about voters in Colorado? Uh, they definitely don't care for the Republican Party or Donald Trump, but they're still kind of at their core a, a pretty discerning, mavericky lot. I mean, then those ballot initiatives. Some in the press wanted to say, oh, they're you know, they're contradicting themselves. And the truth is there are threads that connect them and they, they evaluate these things on the merits, each one sort of on its own standing. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, they do, there's, this is a fiscally conservative state with a strong center-right impulse. You know, Craig ran the, the, you know, the tobacco campaign and did a really effective job. That one passed overwhelmingly. We ran the, the Gallagher Amendment campaign. Clearly not a binary choice, lots of ramifications. That's one they gave based on an evaluation of the, of the facts. So, you know, it's, it's a remarkable state, the voters in the state, that this ballot was so busy. There was so much going on, and they still split their ticket on some of these ballot issues the way they did at the, at the bottom. I, I think speaks to the, you know, the intellect and how serious people take their vote in the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So the, you know, this was a partisan year, but we did see some bipartisanship with this Gallagher Amendment. Josh, was it hard to, to get those coalitions together and you know, bring that to fruition? Yeah, I mean, we're it was so much fun to be fun, part of. Um, and one of the reasons we love the ballot initiative space because it is a chance to to work in a bipartisan way. And our partners, the legislators who push it, they came from both sides of the aisle. To me, yeah, you know, it, it was uh, it was a great outcome and one that speaks well of you know the people of Colorado, the willing to actually make a sacrifice, give up next year's tax cut to to solve an immediate problem. I also think it speaks to people are hungry for bipartisanship. So hopefully in, in the legislature, both sides of the aisle stand up and take notice and continue to act on those those bipartisan impulses. So I wanted to get, get to this part in the podcast where it's called wait. What? 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 You know, it's something that throughout this election cycle, it really made you take a step back and just think, what is going on here? So what are what is that moment for, for each of you? You want to Rochambeau for going first, Craig? <laughs> I thought you, my friend. I'm still <laughs> pondering. Yeah, I you know, it's, it's I would say <laughs> there wasn't a lot of surprise in Colorado for people. You know, there's been a lot of people throwing shade at polls and obviously the polling was wrong. Our polling on a lot of these issues, um, told a pretty clear story, even dating back to last year. Josh, sorry to uh, interject, but why do you think that was? Why do you think the polling was good here and, and not other places? I mean, you know, I, I about, you know, Q1 of 2018, 
it was clear suburban voters in particular had had absolutely enough of Donald Trump. And um, as as Craig said at the outset, kind of not on the margin, like in profound ways, like 20 points shift. And so that fundamental trend, you know, dating back to late 2017, early 2018 has been unchanged through the election. So, you know, uh, unfortunately for Republicans, there were no real surprises in Colorado. Nationally, I think the real surprise, and it should be something that checks Democratic impulses to overreach is Republicans had a really good night on the congressional levels. I thought that, you know, mm-hmm. in the House, in the Senate races, you know, Republicans won a lot of races they didn't think they would. What does it mean? It means that actually the American people really don't totally trust either party. They want checks and balances. Mm-hmm. They want leadership. They want, you know, they want a healing and, a, and, to, and to move forward. I'd say the success of Republicans at the congressional level was definitely the surprise for, for me. Okay. My wait what moment was actually very, very early in the first 24 hours of uh, ballot returns here in Colorado, which I refer to as bonkers, which (laughs) showed the unbelievable Democratic enthusiasm to elect John Hickenlooper, to elect Joe Biden, to get rid of Donald Trump, to make a change in Colorado. And that continued. Obviously, Republicans came out and voted. Uh, Turnout rates amongst Democrats and Republicans eventually stabilized and were pretty close. But the, the overwhelming energy that you saw from Democrats uh, in those first 24, 48, 72 hours of vote by mail was such a signal. Uh, And it wasn't just Democrats. It was younger unaffiliated as well that were just getting those ballots back and saying, I want to be on record. This experience of the last four years has to end. It can't end soon enough. Josh, Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you very much for doing this. All right. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate it. Josh, good seeing you again. Congratulations on Gallagher, man. That was was a big win, man. Well done. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having us. CPR public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Find Purplish through Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a podcast, too, at Colorado Matters. Find us wherever you get your podcasts as well. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.